everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my producer, Joel, in the studio with me. And yes, today, sir. <laughs> we are covering a real life monster, the devil in disguise, the killer clown. He's known by many names, but we are covering the serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. As you know, we are headed into the official month with the official holiday of the Lights Out podcast coming up at the end of this month. It is now October. Very excited for October. This is also just my favorite time of year. The fall. Halloween is my favorite holiday. I know. The vibes are great. Absolutely. And this show just fits so perfectly, I feel like, into this month. So we've got some extra, both spooky and just absolutely terrifying real life horror coming your way in October. So get ready for that. Also, I wanted to mention that when I was recording my other show, Mile Higher, uh, we had some more paranormal sort of things happen. Um, you know, we talked about this before in previous episodes that we've had some weird just things happening here in the studio pretty much since day one. I mean, oh, we've yeah. had cameras just like do weird things and post like a lot of things we don't even notice while we're recording or aren't noticeable to, you know, the naked eye when we're recording the show. But like we had the one episode where we had the orb that was over here that was just kind of like hovering and floating right next to me. And a lot of you thought it was my watch because that's what I thought, too, because, you know, I started wearing this Apple watch and I thought maybe that's a reflection off of my screen. But again, we have only lighting coming from the ceiling down. There's no lights in front of us, so it wouldn't really make my watch is facing away from yeah. the light. So there's really no light. There's no it. way it was your watch. No, I, I don't. I don't believe that either. Well. Just the other day, we were recording Mile Higher, and we were at the end of the episode, and, and I was just talking, and all of a sudden, uh, the three of us heard this weird, like, distorted voice in the headphones. No joke. It wasn't... I couldn't make out what it said, but it just sounded like... Almost like a sound bite, like you, like a sound bite would go off, and we actually have a soundboard, so I thought, oh, so our dog must have, like, stepped on the button or something and set it off, but I look under the table where it was sitting, and there was no dog even near it. So I started being like, oh my God, this just went off at the most random weird time because it also kind of lined up with what I was talking about at the time. And it just like really weirded me out. We all looked at each other like, yep, the studio still haunted. So. Yeah. And I've noticed that in the past too, when we're recording is just the timing of some of these things. Like if you say a specific word or yeah. if we're talking about something, something happens. Yeah. <laughs> shit happens. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, honestly. Like I'm looking forward to getting out of here, <laughs> getting out of here yeah, and man. getting into our, our new studio, which we're in sort of the final stages of getting that ready to go. And hopefully we'll be in it. I'm hoping by the end of the month, I'm hoping that our last episode of October will be in the new space, hopefully. So that's the goal. And we're very excited to sort of unveil what we have sort of been planning with that because it's a totally different vibe, totally different feel than this one. Uh, I think you will definitely like it. So if you're not watching the show on YouTube yet, you're missing out of a huge portion of the show because we do put a ton of yeah. different media and you know overlays and things like that. So you can actually see what we're talking about. Uh, if there's clips, you can obviously not just hear them. You can actually see what's being played. So if you're an audio listener out there, definitely check us out on YouTube. You can just search lights out or follow the link in the show notes. But we'd love to have you over on YouTube as well as over on Apple Podcasts. But also before we get into everything, I just want to remind everybody that my CBD company, Higher Love Wellness, 
has some new stuff out there. We've got tropical CBD gummies, which are absolutely delicious. It's almost like candy, but it's got all that CBD goodness to it. Also, if you haven't tried CBD dabs before, this is the most effective way to consume CBD and it does not get you high, but it does take the edge off and it where you feel an effect almost immediately. And it's just enjoyable to use our turp pen and dab our CBD wax, which is really, really good stuff. It's got really great flavors. We got pineapple express, we've got watermelon haze, and we've got a blueberry OG. So if you haven't checked out higher love wellness, I'd love for you to check it out. Try some CBD dabs. You can get 10% off with code homies at higherlovewellness.com. But this episode of the Lights Out podcast is actually brought to you by, in part with Higher Love Wellness, Honey Hellfresh and Vivino. But this particular serial killer is one of the most terrifying to me and most interesting because he is truly the definition of what a serial killer is and just the criminal profile that makes up a serial killer. This guy is an absolute master manipulator all the way up till the day that he died you just wouldn't necessarily guess that this guy was capable of the monstrous things that he did just based on meeting him or talking to him he just seems like a normal guy you know a normal businessman that's just out there in the world trying to make his way for himself and his family but in reality he is literally the devil himself so let's get into absolutely horrifying story of John Wayne Gacy. December 13th, 1978, Des Plaines Police Department scoured the humble suburban home of John Wayne Gacy. They searched for a 15-year-old boy, Rob Peast, who had recently gone missing after work. As investigators explored the home with their search warrant, at first glance, each corner of the house was laid out perfectly. It was dusted and decorated. The inside seemed like nothing more than a quaint family home, where John, his wife, and his children gathered for family dinner and said their prayers. Beautiful hardwood floors ran through the house. A tiled bar beneath a festive awning hinted at the character of an easygoing man who liked to throw neighborhood parties and schmooze the locals. In the bedroom sat an alarm clock set to the hour of a hardworking man. Tools filled his garage. His contractor outfits lined the inside of the beautiful wooden wardrobe, inlaid with antiquity. He managed a simple home for him and his family, or so it seemed. Yet deep in his wardrobe lay the mask of John Wayne Gacy. Giant red shoes, an oversized jumper with bright stripes, a silly hat, and tubes of face paint rusted in the drawer below. These were the components of Pogo the Clown, a costume where once inside, John felt like most himself. The jumper made him free from his inhibitions, his anxieties, and his sins. He could make children laugh within the suit and bring joy to the neighborhood as a sacred role of a joyous clown. As they closed the wardrobe, the clown suit was the least of their problems. Within the spotless house, they began finding the seeds of a darker man. Handcuffs and ropes appeared. Although they were spotless, What would a simple contractor need handcuffs for? Soon a pistol, hypodermic needles, amyl nitrates, an 18-inch dildo, a handful of ropes and bottles of Valium and atropine all surfaced throughout his house, including several driver's licenses that were not John Gacy's. And the most curious of all, they found a 39-inch 2x4 with two holes drilled into the end, 
and suspicious lines of ropes strewn about. The investigators could only imagine what that device could have been used for. One of the investigators, Detective Schultz, searched the bathroom for any remaining evidence, but as far as he could tell, there was nothing of interest. An ordinary tile bathroom with pictures of flowers and landscapes made it look like any other bathroom of the time. Decorative hand towels and a woman's touch made the bathroom feel folksy and relaxed. Yet what the investigator would find there had nothing to do with the bathroom at all. As he stood within the cold, quaint walls of the Gacy's bathroom, the furnace within the crawl space kicked on. The heater's warmth traveled through the vents of the house, and one of them led straight to the bathroom where Detective Schultz stood. But what that warm air brought with the slight tinge of something sour were the rotting horrors of hell resting quietly beneath the floorboards of the Gacy residence. Even in his final hours, John Wayne Gacy would forever claim innocence for the unspeakable atrocities he had been convicted of. Whether a heavy dose of self-denial or a severe case of delusion had taken over his memories, we'll never know. But the man behind the atrocities, the man seen in the naive public eye of his friends, family, and neighbors, was a simple man of joy and success. Born in Chicago on March 17, 1942, John was raised in a typical nuclear family. His mother was a simple homemaker, and his father was an auto repair machinist and a World War I veteran. He had a fairly normal childhood growing up, despite a toxic relationship with his alcoholic father. He would often turn violent in his drunken stupors and was prone to physical and verbal abuse towards his children. And as much as John loved his father and so desperately wanted to gain his approval, John would fail to win him over time and time again. Adding to the turbulence with his father, John often fell ill and was prone to illness often as a child. Luckily, he found solace with his sister and his mother as they grew a strong bond at the cost of his father's abusive behavior. Teachers regarded John as a smart child, and he scored a 118 on an IQ test. But when John was 11 years old, he suffered a traumatic brain injury from a swing set. And from then on until 16 years old, he was prone to blackouts and a doctor diagnosed him with a blood clot of the brain. The doctor prescribed him medication that eventually relieved the blood clot. In some studies, researchers have connected early traumatic head injuries and serial killers, and some suggest that this incident may have set John on the pathway to deviance. When he was 18, he became an assistant precinct captain for the Democratic Party in his neighborhood. Thinking that this movement towards a leadership role would finally get the approval he saw from his father, he was wrong. His father called him a patsy and would never see any worth in his son. And despite his father's views, John was well-liked. He was a personable young man, and he maintained that reputation into his adulthood. John went to Northwestern Business College and actually graduated in 1963. As a right prospect looking for work, he then took a position for a shoe company in Springfield, Illinois, where he also met his first love, Marilyn Myers, a co-worker at the time. During their courtship, John sought more work in civil duties, and he joined the local JCs, a leadership training and civic organization. During this time, John would have a homosexual encounter with a colleague, a secret he would keep to himself for many years. And after a night of drinking, his JC colleague invited John to spend the night on his sofa and proceeded to have oral sex with him. 
And for the rest of his life, John would continue to have a complicated and conflicting thoughts about his homosexuality. But as far as his public image was concerned, he maintained the image of a straight man on his journey of business and politics. In September of 1964, after a six-month courtship, John married his first wife. Soon after, Marilyn's father bought a handful of Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants, and he quickly offered a management position to his new enthusiastic son-in-law, giving the Gacy family a comfortable income. All seemed to be going well in simple suburbia. John had a wife, a house, a steady income, and a favorable position within the local Gacy's organization. And over the next few years, his wife gave birth to two children, a son and a daughter. And John considered this moment in time to be perfect. Even his father came to apologize. In a watershed moment, John's father said he was deeply sorry for the years of abuse. He had deep regret, and he admitted it was nice to see his son become so successful and happy. The years of desperately wanting his father's approval finally came to a head, and he ultimately earned what he had always wanted. By the mid to late 1960s, everything seemed to be lining up perfectly for John. But as the story goes, this was only the calm before the horrific storm. While living in Waterloo, John joined the local JCs, and although they maintained a positive public appearance, much like John, the dark underbelly of the organization eventually came to light. The fundraising and philanthropy of the JCs was only a facade. Behind the curtain, prostitution, wife swapping, pornography, and drug use became common vices for many JCs. Despite this, they saw John as a strong leader, and in 1967, they even named him Outstanding Vice President. John was also chummy with his KFC employees, and they dubbed him John Colonel for his work in the franchise. And he often threw crazy parties for his employees where they would drink excessively in the privacy of his own home. Regardless of who came to the gatherings, John would almost exclusively chat up the younger men. And after offering them a few drinks, he often made advances towards them. Cunning as he was, they often rejected him. He would claim he was simply joking when they did this, or just testing their morals. In August of 1967, just after the JCs named him the outstanding vice president, John lured 15-year-old Donald Voorhees, the son of a fellow JC, to his home. He promised to show Donald a few stag films which was pornography produced in secret and circulated across the country. He then coaxed Donald into having oral sex, saying that to have sex with a woman, men have to have sex with other men first. And over the next several months, this happened several more times with countless others. And he often told the boys he was simply conducting research on homosexual activity and even paid them money before they left. It wasn't until March of 1968 when Donald finally told his father about the assault his father quickly notified the police, and they went and arrested and charged John for sodomy. John, though, vehemently denied any wrongdoing and even requested a polygraph test, which he failed. He claimed that Donald's father, Donald Voorhees Sr., had it out for him and that the whole story was just made up. Voorhees was against John's nomination for the local JC president position, so John Use this as his defense. And like a true budding politician, John claimed that these allegations were fabricated and politically motivated. Several of his JC colleagues supported him throughout the endeavor. But in May 1968, 
John was indicted. At only 26 years old, he pled guilty to the charges, and the judge sentenced him to 10 years in prison. Many of his neighbors, friends, and relatives were shocked to learn of John's behavior, and his reputation in Waterloo plummeted. His wife divorced him after the sentencing, and she requested that the house be awarded to her along with full custody of the children along with alimony. John's only response was anger, and he told his wife that she and the children were dead to him and that he never wanted to see them again. Yet this wasn't the end for John. In some ways, this was just the beginning. He wasn't about to let a simple sodomy charge and a divorce squash his ambitions. So while in prison, John absolutely thrived. He quickly became a model prisoner. He made his way to the position of head cook and joined the JC chapter that existed within the prison. He even recruited so many members that the JC membership count rose from 50 to 650 men and went on to push for better pay for mess hall employees. And despite having already graduated from college, it turned out that John had never graduated from high school. So while incarcerated, he attended 16 high school courses and actually earned his high school diploma in November 1969. While life in prison treated John well, as he thrived in a place where others would fail, on Christmas Day 1969, John's father died of liver failure. His excessive drinking had finally caught up to him. And when John heard the news, he fell to the floor, sobbing in agony. He requested supervised leave from prison for the funeral, but this was denied. By June of the next year, John was granted parole with 12 months probation, and he had only served 18 months out of the 10 years he was sentenced. Had John's impeccable behavior been a ploy to free himself from prison, or was prison just the ideal life and environment for him? Separated from the sin and anxieties of the outside world, John may have found the only place he could exist away from temptation. In 1971, as he left prison and breathed the fresh Illinois air as a free man, John figured this was a perfect time to make a clean start and a new beginning. So he returned to Chicago started working as a contractor, and he later started his own contracting business. He also jumped right back into the political circuit, barely missing a beat. But no matter his endeavors, John would never be able to shake the lure of temptation. Much like an addict, he couldn't resist the urges that overcame him, and the urges only grew stronger and stronger as time went on. During his 12-month parole, he was ordered to live with his mother in Chicago, and have a 10 p.m. curfew every night. And despite the conditions of his parole, John still found a way to seek out trouble. In February 1971, John allegedly picked up a teenage boy at Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal and forced him into having sex with him. He was then charged with sexual assault, but the case was dismissed when the boy failed to appear in court. Again in June of 1971, he was charged with aggravated sexual battery and reckless conduct. After flashing a fake sheriff's badge, he had lured a boy to his car and then forced the boy to perform oral sex. The charges were later dropped after the plaintiff attempted to blackmail John. His parole board never found out about these incidents either, and after 12 months, John's parole ended. And in the following month, John's criminal record was sealed. Now free, and free from his criminal past, John bought a house in metropolitan Chicago with the help of his mother. It was a quaint ranch near the village of Norwich. 
Soon after moving, he had reconnected with an old friend from high school, Carol Hoff. She was a divorcee with two children, and although much time had passed since their high school years, the relationship quickly rekindled. They became engaged and married within a year. At the time, Carol Hoff could not imagine the road she had just gone down. Life at first seemed normal for quiet American standards of suburbia. John's contracting business was doing well, and everyone in the neighborhood seemed to like him. He was known to plow snow and loan out construction tools free of charge to his neighbors. And every summer he would throw a massive neighborhood get-together. Over 400 people would attend these gatherings, especially local politicians. Streamers lined the houses and children ran with glee through the streets. John also contributed to the community by joining the Jolly Joker Clown Club, which sent its members out to perform for local events, parades, and even volunteered at local children's hospitals. It was during these years John developed his clown personas. Pogo and Patches. Pogo was a jolly, happy-go-lucky goofball, while Patches was a bit more reserved and severe. It was within these masks that John fell free of his inhibitions. As he put on the suit and the face paint, he allowed himself to regress into a sense of childhood and opened himself up to more whimsical joys of life. Some locals saw John at the bar still in costume. As he drank a few beers before heading home, it was as if he wanted to stay in the clown costume just a bit longer. And through his voluntary service of being a clown, he eventually was given the nickname, Clown Killer. But he only ever used his clown costume for volunteer work and bringing joy to the community. As his contracting work continued to do well, John continued to stake his claim in local politics. His sexual deviance began shaking the foundations of his second marriage. And by 1975, after four years of marriage, John confessed to his wife that he was a bisexual. And on Mother's Day of the same year, as they lay in bed after making love, John told her that this was the last time he would ever have sex with her. He spent most of his time, especially his evenings, out of the house from then on. And as he would sneak back into the house and crawl back to bed, Carol would ask him where he had been. And every time, John made the excuse that he had to work late. At first, she thought this late-night excursions were just spells of infidelity. Yet on occasion, she would see him bringing young boys into their garage in the early morning hours. Soon enough, she found heaps of gay pornography stashed away in driver's license of boys she didn't know. When she finally found the nerve to confront John about this, he angrily dismissed her, and he told her it was none of her business. With no other option, by October 1975, Carol Hoff asked her husband for a divorce. He granted the divorce with ease, and they both agreed that she and her daughters could live there until they found a new place to live. In February 1976, Carol left home with her daughters in tow, and they moved into their own apartment. A month later, the divorce was finalized, and the official papers claimed John's infidelity with women was the reason for divorce. And from then on, with nothing to hold John back, his sexual encounters with young men escalated. He would lure them back to his house, and John realized somewhere along the way, sex was just not enough. He started accessing the more violent nature within him, and began burning the young men with candles and drowning them in the tub until they were gasping for air. Sometimes the police were called on him, but John claimed that he had a sex-slave relationship with these young men, and the police never filed charges 
and dismiss the violence as lovers' quarrels. Yet this escalation in violence was only a shallow glimpse into the darkness that hid underneath. The same as his humble home, for beneath its surface rested the secrets of a madman. So as you can see, already up until this point, there are multiple times where something more should have been done oh, yeah. about John's behavior and what he was doing to these young boys, young men. And at the time, I mean, we're dealing with the 70s. It was a much different time than today. There was probably, my guess is the officers just were weirded out by it and just didn't want to deal with it. Or maybe there just wasn't enough evidence. I mean, who knows? But it just seems like there was multiple opportunities where John should have went back to prison. I mean, to do 18 months for a 10-year sentence is also pretty wild to think. But then again, John's a master manipulator, and he was a model prisoner. And so he, fo- he really fooled everybody. And it's not surprising how he didn't really care when his wives wanted a divorce, because it makes me it was think never really in it. it was never real. He's just using them as a, a cover-up, like cover Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Yeah, he really tried to create this like model life from the exterior for himself and his family so that it wouldn't raise suspicion. Right. Which he denies this, but this is obviously what's going it's on. It's obviously true. Very obvious. Yeah. But then things take an absolutely much darker and sinister turn from here. But before we continue, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. At the 1978 Polish Freedom Parade, John stood with a proud smile as he had his photograph taken with the then First Lady Rosalind Carter. This would later become an iconic photograph that would go down in history, as you can imagine. The world of darkness and politics had met with smiling faces forever captured in time beneath the flash of a camera. In the photograph, John is seen wearing an S-pin issued by the Secret Service to identify those cleared on the reviewing stand. Unknown to them by this time, John was almost done with his slew of brutal murders. Not until December of 1978 when Rob Peace disappeared, local investigators got their first whiff of John's malicious trail. Inside the bathroom of that quaint house, Detective Schultz would forever remember the smell of bodies, the sickening sweet tinge of rot, a smell of spoiled meat, and a drop of perfume. It rose from the furnace below, as it warmed the house filled with detectives. And they would soon witness the result of an American record in serial killing. John began his systematic killing spree sometime in the early 1970s when he married his second wife. As his contracting business grew, he often hired teenagers and young men onto his crew. Not only were they cheap labor, John also saw them as easy targets. Like many of his victims, even going back to his earliest days of sexual assault, He typically found them through work environments or his local political organizations. And by the 70s, he had carved out several routines of murder that allowed him to fly under the radar for years. Outside of work, he found many of his targets by cruising the streets at night. Sometimes he lingered around areas of town where male prostitutes could be found. Other times he impersonated a police officer and flagged down random teenagers on the sidewalk. He attached two large lights that swiveled on his car similar to that of a police squad car, and he would shine the lights at the boys and flash a fake sheriff's badge, fooling the young boys into thinking they were being detained. John's first known murder occurred January 3, 1972, on a cold winter night in Chicago. 
The day before, 16-year-old Timothy McCoy left the family dinner and decided to drive from Michigan to Chicago's Loop to see an ice sculptures exhibit in the early morning hours. He then headed to catch a Greyhound bus to Omaha. But on his way, John intercepted the teen at the bus terminal and told the boy he could stay at his house for the night while he waited for the bus in the morning. Timothy agreed. According to John, the next morning he awoke to Timothy in his bedroom with a knife in his hand. John jumped from the bed and charged at Timothy, thinking he was trying to kill him. As Timothy raised his hands to surrender, he accidentally cut John on the arm. John then twisted the knife out of Timothy's hand and smashed his head into the wall. Timothy tried defending himself from John, but that only angered him further. He wrestled Timothy to the floor and stabbed him over and over again in the chest. Blood flowed from his chest and filled his lungs, and he gurgled and spat out blood from his mouth. And in a moment, he was dead. John hunched over him with the bloody knife in hand. As the boy let out his last breath, John experienced the most intense orgasm he had ever felt. He felt utterly exhausted, as if he had just finished a long night of intercourse. It was at that moment that John realized that nothing would ever feel as good. Death had become the ultimate pleasure, and he would chase that pleasure for another seven years. After John experienced this life-changing orgasm, he took the knife and went to clean the blood off in the kitchen sink. It was there that he saw an open carton of eggs, an unsliced bacon sitting on the counter. The table had been set for two, and Timothy had only entered his room to wake John up for breakfast. After this, John wouldn't murder again for several years. However, once his divorce was finalized, this is when John let loose. He no longer had to sneak around his wife and children to carry out his depraved fantasies. Neighbors heard his car engine start at strange hours of the night, and they would see his car return in the early morning hours. They also saw him keeping the company of young men, but they were reminded that they need to keep to themselves and mind their own business. Many still saw John as a good man and a good neighbor, and that his private life shouldn't really concern them. John referred to these years after his divorce as the cruising years. His desire for having sex with young men increased, as did his murder spree. He would cruise the streets at night looking for both. He often looked for young men traveling, so investigators would figure that the boys simply ran away from home. John took all of his victims back to his house. He convinced the young and naive victims that he was a police officer, and even had them handcuff themselves behind their backs. And for those that resisted, he pressed a rag soaked with chloroform to their mouths until they fell unconscious. If they ever woke up on the way to his house, he would continue to put the rag over their mouth. He would then drag them from his car into his home. Some of his victims were only raped while unconscious, and John would dump them on the steps of Lincoln Park, where they would wake the following day and have no recollection of what had just happened to them the night before. But many he raped and murdered, often using strangulation to kill them. The strange device investigators found in his house, the two-by-four with holes drilled into the ends, was a tool John crafted to kill his victims. He would tie a rope through the ends of the wooden plank and wrap the rope around the victim's neck and twist the plank until the rope tightened. Once the rope was tight around their necks, he would continue to turn the plank as the rope gripped their neck and crush their windpipe. He would twist 
and twist until he couldn't twist any tighter. And he listened to the victim's last breath. And while doing this, it gave him the most intense sexual pleasure of his life. Victim after victim, John continued his killing streak. But in December of 1978, his history of transgressions finally caught up to him. On December 11th, John took a trip to Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines, where the owner wanted to discuss a potential remodeling of the store. Seeing Robert Peace behind the counter, a young, naive, and handsome young boy, John immediately took interest. The cogs of this killing machine began turning. In an attempt to entice Robert into working for him, he casually mentioned to the owner that he often hired young boys for $5 an hour which was more than double the amount he was making at the pharmacy. John finished his meeting with the store owner and casually mentioned to Robert that he would hire him for contractor work. When Robert's mother came to the pharmacy at closing time to pick up her son, Robert told her that he had to run to a meeting with a contractor for a job opportunity and would be back soon. In fact, Robert was headed over to John's home. And once he arrived, he was welcomed inside. While they talked about business, John asked him if there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price. With a bit of confusion, Robert said he was willing to work hard for good pay. And John told him that he could make good money while hustling. And as his cunning cogs began turning, he eventually convinced Robert to put handcuffs on himself. He then told the boy, I'm going to rape you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Robert began to cry as he quickly realized the horror he was about to face. John raped him and then placed the rope device around Robert's neck. He began systematically turning the plank over and over again, and as he cranked it, the rope tightened. And as Robert died a slow and painful death clutching at the air around him, he cried and whimpered until the very end. His body then slumped to the floor. This would be John's last victim in a slew of rapes and murders. After the disappearance of Robert Peace, investigators quickly caught on to John Wayne Gacy. Not only did the pharmacy owner identify John as the contractor, but several other missing boys had once worked for John's contractor business. As cunning as John thought he was, it was only a matter of time until investigators were starting to put the pieces together. Investigators were granted the ability to do surveillance. The police multiple times actually interviewed John Wayne Gacy and they brought him in. They'd question him about the missing boys, and John every single time would just act clueless like he had never seen them before, and that he had never, you know, none of them had ever worked for him, and basically just would lie flat out to investigators. If you notice here, we got pictures of every one of the victims here, and believe it or not, for the last 12 years, I've studied these photos of the victims, but still there is no association. None of them never worked for me. They never went to any places that I ever hung around because I didn't hang, hang around that many places unless you were involved in politics, but there's no way I could have run into any of them. But then they got a warrant to search John's home, and during the search, they found handcuffs, garter belts, and a class ring that belonged to a recently missing high school graduate. They also found the strangulation device and a receipt Robert's coworker had placed in his jacket pocket. And during this search, Detective Schultz relieved himself in Gacy's bathroom, and he would later recall that horrific, unmistakable smell of rotting corpses. This would later lead to a second search warrant to search in the crawl space below John's house. Under surveillance, John was caught making his rounds to different friends and associates. 
Investigators believe that John knew he was about to get caught, so he made his last rounds and said his goodbyes before possibly killing himself. And before they let that happen, they quickly arrested him. Not long after the interrogation began, he confessed to strangling and sexually abusing young boys. And when the second search of his home and the crawl space took place on December 21, 1978, investigators tore up the floorboards of John's house and crushed through the cement that had been poured into his crawl space. And it didn't take long for them to discover the bones of human remains. One after another, the bodies appeared through the cold mud of December beneath the Gacy house. Hours passed, and days dragged on, and police carried out body bags one after another, while local news reported a new body count each day. Police have been watching John Gacy's suburban Chicago home for the past 10 days. They became suspicious when 15-year-old Robert Peast disappeared after he allegedly was last seen with Gacy. This morning, police searched Gacy's home and found the decomposed remains of three bodies in a dirt crawl space under the house. They suspect there are several more bodies buried here. Crowds had gathered outside of the home to watch in complete shock that their neighbor, the kind and caring John Wayne Gacy, had the darkest secret of the century beneath his house. Every single floorboard of the house was torn out and thrown into a dumpster, and the house became another skeleton above the corpses. The more they dug into the ground, the more moisture pooled from the earth below. They began sifting through the watery mud with strainers to find the bones. They even brought out John from jail to point out where he had buried the bodies. He drew a map of his foundation and drew almost exactly where each body had been. And they marked each muddy pit with a number, indicating where the bodies were found. And after all of the digging and sifting, 29 total bodies were found underneath his property. Yet the body of Robert Peast wasn't there. By 1978, John believed that his crawl space was full and he could no longer fit any more bodies beneath his home. And knowing that there was nothing more to do than confess at this point, John told police that he began disposing of bodies by throwing them over a bridge into the Des Plaines River. He even showed them where he dumped them. After scouring the river near the location John had pointed out, police recovered four more bodies making the total count 33. And after building an extensive, irrefutable case against John, they indicted him in April of 1979 for the murder of 33 young men and boys. Four of the bodies were never identified. Within that six-year time frame, John Wayne Gacy had caused so much terror, single-handedly. This would be the most significant amount of murders ever charged to one person in U.S. history. John's trial began in February of 1980. The jurors had to be brought in from Rockford since the case was so well known in Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. They were then sequestered for the entire six-week trial. In his defense, John pleaded not guilty and claimed insanity. So the question of the trial moved from, is he guilty? Or is he insane? During the trial, psychiatric evaluations offered a variety of opinions on John. Some claimed he had borderline personality disorder, paranoid schizophrenia, sexual deviance, and amnesia. The prosecution argued that his killings were undoubtedly premeditated. As John had dug trenches below his house long before he started killing, and the handcuffs and strangulation devices found in the home suggested he would continue these premeditated murders. In an attempt to discredit the psychiatric evaluation, the prosecution pointed out that if John did suffer from amnesia, 
how could he point out exactly where the bodies were located? In the following days of the trial, John was so confident in his case that he even circled a St. Patrick's Day event in the local newspaper, looked at the prosecutor and said, I'll see you there. Yet his confidence was not enough to win the case. In one final blow, a psychiatrist took the stand. He looked out at the row of jurors and told them that if John proved to be psychotic, he would be let back out onto the street. They could not institutionalize him against his will. So regardless of John being truly insane, the jurors had to consider their conscience. The question had moved from is he guilty to is he insane? Or should he walk as a free man? After this testimony, it only took the jury one vote to convict John Wayne Gacy of murder. And the next day, he was sentenced to death. But obviously, as we know, when you're sentenced to death, you do spend a lot of time in prison before you actually are put to death. And while incarcerated, John spent much of his time painting. And just like before, he seemed to flourish in prison life, as if he was always meant to be there. He kept a journal and logged his entire journey within the prison walls. He spent much of his time with his legal team as they tried to appeal his sentencing, but failed time and time again. And despite everything John had once confessed to, he denied his guilt until the very end during his time in prison. People don't want to know the truth and the, and the honesty of it. If they want to be convinced or brainwashed into what they believe, then fine, then go ahead and kill me. But vengeance is mine, say it the Lord, because you will have executed somebody that didn't commit the crime. When they paint the image that I was this monster who, who picked up like these altar boys along the street and swatted them like flies, I said, this is ludicrous. I've taken th- uh, five and a half hours, three and a half hours of truth serum, and under, under sodium amethyl, the maximum amount that I could have, it shows that I have no knowledge of the crime whatsoever, never have had. And as he considered the death sentence before him, he worked his way towards being at peace with himself. He said he was not afraid to face God, and he had been going to church for the last decade. He had confessed his sins and had no qualms about his past actions. On May 10, 1994, 14 years after his conviction, the Supreme Court denied the last request for a stay of execution, and John marched his way towards death. Beyond the walls of his cell, crowds cheered in joy. The final call he made to his attorney, John was in complete denial about his eventual death. He asked his lawyer if the conversation could wait until later, not understanding that he would soon be executed. Just after midnight, they strapped John to the execution gurney. Many watched from the adjacent room as the executioner pumped him with three lethal injections and pronounced him dead at 12.58 a.m. And John Wayne Gacy's last words were, Kiss my ass. A few months after the execution, relatives of the victims held a ceremony to commemorate those they lost. They each took one of John's paintings and burned them in a communal fire, hoping to release themselves from a small piece of the insurmountable pain he had left behind. And that is the terrifyingly disturbing story of John Wayne Gacy, literally the devil in disguise. I think it's safe to say that John Wayne Gacy got what he deserved at the end. I don't see any other punishment for him other than death. I mean, it's very clear that John was never going to be able to be a productive member of society. He, I mean, it's clear that he was mentally ill and just went years and years undiagnosed without any help. 
And well, well, I don't think he's necessarily insane because right. I mean, he was smart enough to be able to function like a normal person in society. And I just think he had a real bad addiction, you know, to that sexual abuse he did to those. Yeah. Those kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I think, I don't think he's criminally insane or, or just like out of his mind. No. Cause like you said, this was all way too meticulously planned yeah. out. And just the fact that he was so smart. I mean, the guy was kind of an evil genius. He was able to, you know, these are the most dangerous serial killers, the ones that, you know, by day yeah. you would never know. That right. They fool everybody. They're like, yeah. he's like this, he leads this organization. He's right. a business owner. He's a politician. Mm-hmm. Like he's all these different things. He's out in the public. He's talking to everybody. He's very, very confident in himself and his abilities and how smart he is right that he feels like he can outsmart everybody but he wasn't able to outsmart investigators because i mean eventually i mean to put all of the evidence underneath your own house is yeah you know it's gonna all come to a head at some point and it did for him he definitely got sloppy with with it towards yeah. the end like he just got way too comfortable with what too he confident, was doing yeah. yeah and that's often what happens with serial killers is they just get to a point where they think they're untouchable and then they they make a mistake or uh well what really happens is that john you know he would come in and they would ask him the investigators before they even raided his house the investigators would ask him just little things about you know questions about some of these boys and just his reactions that he gave them raised the suspicion level for for them because ultimately, back in the 70s, I mean, there's there wasn't an easy way to figure out John's background because after he moved, you know, he moved out of Chicago and stuff that the police didn't really know his criminal history from his prior indictment for sodomy. And that was the big turning point is once investigators actually went and pulled his criminal background and they found this sodomy charge and then they paired it up with his reactions when they asked him about these missing boys and he'd get all weird and he'd be like, I don't know anything about that. And then at one point, apparently John, when he was being questioned by police and this was just like, they were not necessarily considering him a suspect or anything. They just were like, let's talk to this guy. Cause he was like at the pharmacy, Yeah, you know, he's the last guy at the pharmacy who saw, you know, Pete, uh, Robert peace. When they kind of asked John about this, John got really, really weird so much so that he like left. He just like got up and left, got in his car and like drove off like a madman, oh, like wow. peeled out. Yeah. It was like, Oh, I don't know anything about that. Just all super. So just like red flags. So it was like alarm bells <laughs> yeah. going off and the cops were like, this is, yeah. I think this is the guy. And then that's when they went and pulled up his criminal history and they that's realized he had sense. the yeah. sodomy charge against that young boy way back from his Damn. past. And they're like, this is the guy. Wow. And then that's how, then they did surveillance and they realized that they got to search his house. And then it all fell apart for him at that point. Cause it seems that John played it cool. And then right. You know, the he lost his shit at yeah. the end. He, it, it was all catching up to him and he couldn't keep his cool or keep that low profile yeah. that he had for so long. And he started setting off the alarm bells for people. I think it, I think he really knew that it was about to be over and he was just falling apart with. Right. Right. I think just with the whole thing, I mean, to have, you know, 29 bodies under your, under your house that are all rotting. And, you know, I'm sure all of that was starting to get to him and, Oh, I bet. And just, he knew that this was going to end at some point and, and thank God that it did because I think John would have went on killing for years and years and years. I mean, I don't think he was planning to stop at all. So, you know, ultimately, I'm glad he was caught and he was given the proper sentence for his crimes. 
and obviously rest in peace to all of the victims here. I mean, there's so many that there's not even, you know, there's not even information. There's not even identities of four of them, let alone, we don't even know the stories surrounding all of the other 29 that were, or, you know, I guess subtract two. So 27, 25 or so that were killed because it just, John never, again, once he got into prison, John denied it. He just denied all of it. He's like, oh, I I don't know these faces. Like they gave John a book of all, like basically the case file with pictures of all the victims. Mm -hmm. And John would flip through and he'd be like, they're just names and faces. He's like, I don't remember any yeah. of these people. I never had any contact. Yeah, I want to come clean about it. No. So he never, he never, even though he confessed initially at the beginning mm-hmm. to a lot of it, he eventually was just like, yeah, I did. I had nothing to do with this. I, I did not, I am not, he did not consider himself the monstrous serial killer that he really was. Right. So it just goes to show you that obvi- I think he really did have some personality disorders. He really was two faced. He really thought he was like, Jekyll and Hyde, basically. Yeah. He could be this like charming, outgoing citizen, and then he could be this absolutely evil monster. Oh, yeah. And thankfully, justice came for John Wayne Gacy. But that is where we're going to leave this episode of Lights Out. Hopefully, you found it interesting. We've got a lot more coming down the pipe for October. A lot of different interesting stuff that I'm sure you will enjoy. Make sure you're subscribed to Lights Out on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. It does really help us out. Make sure you leave us a rating and review and let Joel know how good of a job he's been doing (laughs) on these episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, especially because Joel spends a lot of time to really put this together to make it the masterpiece. I I do see the comments on previous YouTube videos. So I I definitely appreciate you guys are, are seeing the hard work that goes into the show. Hell yeah. You know, because me and Josh put so much time into this. and Yeah, people don't often realize how much work goes into podcasting, I feel like. It's not as easy as it seems. People are way, way too critical about podcasting. And it's like, whenever I see somebody that's hating, I'm like, where's, where's your, your podcast? Where's your podcast? That's why yeah. I feel like replying to people is like, where's your podcast? Then? Right. If you can do it better than us, let's see it. Let's see it. Give us the link. We'll right? check it out. Yeah. Anyways, we appreciate all yeah. of you that do leave us positive feedback. And obviously, we're open to getting better suggestions you know we're not here like thinking we're we're the best of the best or anything like that it's just you know some people out there just don't seem to get it but yeah anyways that wraps it up for us today thanks again for joining us for another episode of the lights out podcast and until next time lights out everybody